What I've observed, and we've noted a lot over the years in the user experience team, is that when you look at what a good user experience looks like for somebody with dyslexia, somebody with uh, color blindness, or somebody who needs good contrast, that actually provides a really good user experience for everybody. Hi, I'm your host, Jude Pereira, and today we have two phenomenal guests joining us on the show, Christina Volpe and Stacey Scott. As experts in accessibility, they will be sharing their thoughts and experiences in some of the leading ways to effectively implement and support accessibility in the publishing industry. They will also advise us about where they see the future of accessibility. Without further ado, let's dive right into our latest episode. Christina, Stacy, welcome to the Research Impact Podcast. So to start us off with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Christina Volpe, and I am the Accessibility Solutions Lead for Wiley Research. And my job is to develop and implement accessibility strategies that cover a very wide range of topic areas, everything from product development to support to procurement. My name is Stacey Scott, and I am the head of accessibility for Taylor and Francis Group Publishing. So my role is very similar to that of Christina. So I am responsible for devising and rolling out our accessibility strategy. And that is across content, across our platforms, making sure that everything is accessible to everyone. It even includes our social media activity and our marketing efforts as well. I also sit on a number of ancillary groups related to accessibility and inclusion, and I'm the chair of the Publishing Accessibility Action Group for the UK. Thank you so much, both. So I'm quite excited to dive right in to the topics we have today. So the both of you work in roles that involve advocating for accessibility as everyone's job across the organization. What is challenging about the work you do and what is most rewarding? So I would say without a doubt, the biggest challenge is really around training and awareness in general, because we need to be able to shift conversations left, meaning that accessibility is included at the very beginning of everything that we do. And it's picked up throughout the process, as opposed to leaving it to the very end. When you think about organizations that have 7,000, 10,000 plus employees, who are in many different countries and regions around the world, also with varying degrees of knowledge, that can be really hard to do because not only do you need to get support from your leadership teams so that they're the folks who own the budgets and the resourcing, everyone who's working on this on a day-to-day basis needs to not only understand what this is, but how to implement it successfully. And if you're unable to do that, you're not going to get very far. So changing that perception And getting people to understand exactly what they need to do can be very hard for that particular reason. I would say the biggest rewards are when you sit down at the beginning of the year and you decide these are the goals I want to focus on. And if you're able to successfully achieve those goals, no matter how big or small they are, that is definitely the biggest reward for me, considering how hard it is to change perception within large organizations. 
Thank you so much, Christina. That's very insightful. And now moving on to our second topic, this is more aimed towards it, Stacey. Thinking about development and product teams, but also beyond those teams across the content lifecycle, what are some practical examples of why having users of accessibility tech on the team is so important? What happens when you don't have those perspectives in the conversation? It's such a great question and it's a topic so close to my heart. So I am somebody who was born blind and so I use accessibility features and content on a daily basis. And for me, I see constantly why that it's necessary to have people who will be using your end product, using it from the very beginning and involved in the design. And I think that having my personal experience of both the accessibility challenges, but also solutions, has enabled Chilean Francis to expand and develop a strategy that really does put people's experience in the front and center of everything. It's so important. We want it to be good. We want it to be right. And we need it to be. And the only way to do that is to have those living experiences. And so for me, I can bring living experience of sight loss, screen reader users, so that's text-to-speech technology, but there's such a broad range of different disabilities and conditions out there with a variety of accessibility requirements. And it's really important that we don't suggest that I would have all the answers to everybody's accessibility needs, because I certainly don't. And so to have as much involvement as possible is so important. For example, would we try and make a Michelin-starred meal without involving a chef? Absolutely not. I certainly wouldn't. Some of the practical examples that I've seen where they haven't involved people with lived experience of accessibility needs from the start. So we've seen products that are essentially not born accessible. And it goes back to what Christina said about the challenges. You then end up with a system or content that you're trying to retrofit accessibility into. It's not accessible as it is. And so the time, the the resources and the money that it will then take to unscramble that egg and make it accessible, it's, it's immense. And it would have been so much better had it been done from the beginning, born accessible with people who knew how to make it accessible. And so, for example, what do we mean by skill set that you might need? What, what does that lived experience look like? So from my perspective, from a screen reader user's perspective, I will quite often have a QA team say to me, oh, well, we did some testing. We clicked on it and it spoke to us. It talked out loud, therefore it's accessible. And I'm sure Christina could tell you as much as me, that is not the definition of something being accessible. It's way more complicated than that. And so there's these constant lived examples and reminders of why we need to have people that use it um, in every stage of the process. I think also it's the right thing to do. And I see a lot of of companies and businesses asking for people to come and test their systems, to check them for accessibility, but they never offer any remuneration. And it's always temporary one-off sessions or maybe two or three. But I very rarely see it actually being embedded within a job description. And that's something I'd love to see change because people with disabilities and conditions, their time isn't free. And that level of expertise that they bring is so important. And so it needs to be brought in in a a serious way that encompasses them right from the start, but also through the whole life cycle of whatever product or piece of content that we're looking at, because things change all the time. And so those accessibility features that people may have brought in at the start, how do you know if they're still going to work if you want to make some changes? 
And so the best way is to actually start involving disabled people in everything that we do, and no, no matter what it is. Thank you very much, Stacey. Now, I have a bit of a follow-up to you. Now, you spoke a bit about including accessibility as a very important topic in the beginning of the life cycle of a product or a project. Do you have any advice for those who are trying to do it the other way around? They've not thought about accessibility in the beginning, but they're a bit down the line now, and they want to look at implementing more accessible products and more accessible practices within those products. Sure, absolutely. And of course, I'm sure they'll all be learning from that lesson and bringing people in from the beginning for the next time. But there's so many good resources out there. The group that I chair, the Publishing Accessibility Action Group, it is a group that meets every two months and it is full of accessibility professionals where we share experience in the publishing sector and it covers everything from how to make content accessible. There is no question too big or too small. And there are lots of groups like that. And there's so many great resources online. We could spend forever listing some great URLs. But for just to give an example, the DAISY Consortium, they have so many webinars and tool tips on how do we make things accessible. And that's everything from content to looking at platform access. And so even just Googling, how do I comply with the European Accessibility Act or Accessibility 101 is going to find you some wonderful resources and it's never too late to start. And I think a good starting off point is also having some type of corporate standard around what you want to do and the difference and the different standards you want to work toward and practical approaches that you want the people in your company to take when they are trying to build accessibility into a project or they're coming into it after the fact and trying to find out, find how they can go back and fix the things that are, that might be wrong with a particular product or service. And I also think it's important to recognize that accessibility can take a very long time to implement. And sometimes people get overwhelmed very easily. So you also need to pick a starting off point. And sometimes you need to start small and build upon that cycle to cycle or year to year. So I think that's really important as well when you're trying to come back after the fact to retrofit a product so that it meets standards. This episode is brought to you by Wiley Partner Solutions. As the landscape of access continues to change throughout the research and publishing ecosystem, we seek to help our partners and customers explore and adapt to these changes in ways that deliver sustainable growth and a better research experience throughout the researcher journey. Find out more at www.wiley.com slash partner solutions. Thank you so much for your insight. We really see how important it is to think about accessibility. It should have been important from a long time ago, but I personally feel that people are seeing the importance of it, but we still have a long way to go as products go and as companies go. So now moving on to our third topic. In our industry, when we talk about accessibility, there seems to be two overwhelming areas of focus, making written and visual content accessible to people who can't see it and making audio content accessible to people who can't hear it. But there's a whole universe of accessibility needs out there. Now, my question to both of you is, what else should we be focusing on? 
That's a great question. So I think you're right. A lot of people tend to focus on those who may be blind or have limited vision or those who can't perceive color, who are deaf or may have limited hearing. But there's a very wide spectrum beyond this that you need to take into account. We're also talking about people who may have a physical disability. So this is maybe like a paraplegic or quadriplegic, as well as those who have a cognitive disability, such as dyslexia. And it's also important to recognize that people may have more than one disability. So you're going to have intersections. But when you're trying to develop or design for some of those latter groups, you really want to take into account things like keyboard navigation. So if I can't physically hold a mouse, I may instead use a keyboard and keyboard only use is something that um, people who are blind also use who are using a screen reader. So it's keystrokes. Am I able to access content with the enter, the space bar, directional arrows? How does this impact things like touch targets, for example, as well, if you are developing for mobile? So it's how large are those touch targets and how far apart are those touch targets? And if we're talking about people who may have a cognitive disability, a lot of this comes down to consistency. So it's having multiple and consistent means of navigating a web page or navigating a product It's having a layout that is consistent and components that are consistent. If you've ever been in a situation where you need to learn how to use a product and that product may be very different from something else, it's hard to remember how things are organized. Just think about using Teams versus Zoom. How do I record? How do I do this? So if you have similar experiences across product, you want to make sure that it's clear how you do specific things and what specific elements are meant to do because it makes it easier to understand those types of things. It's really about thinking for developing for a very wider range of people. And it goes back to the discussion around including people with disabilities in the development process, because that helps you to identify a lot of that work very early on so that you have set goals as you are going through and developing a product or a service. If I could just add to that, I think absolutely I agree with Christina. I think there is also a misperception perhaps that in order to accommodate somebody, say, with dyslexia, for example, that all the marketing font is going to have to be something quite unusual and the colouring is going to have to be unusual and the contrast. And actually what I've observed, and we've noted a lot over the years in the user experience team, is that when you look at what a good user experience looks like for somebody with dyslexia, somebody with uh, colorblindness or somebody who needs good contrast, that actually provides a really good user experience for everybody. I sat with my team and had them looking at, say, a web page or some content before we've made it accessible. And they're going, I can't see this. Now, they don't have any disability or condition, but they're finding it really difficult to read. We then change it to make it accessible for people with visual impairments, but also people with dyslexia and and a variety of other conditions. And all of a sudden, it's a much better experience for everybody, including the people who didn't think they needed it to be altered for them in the first place. And so I think it's always important to think about universal design. We don't need to do it especially for somebody with a certain condition or disability. Sometimes universal design is exactly what we need to move forward in the most inclusive way. And on universal design, how would you tell, let's say, a company who's creating a new product to approach universal design from day number one? So I would say 
to look at some of the standards that are out there that that talk about how to make your content stand out, how to make it look clear. And so that talks about things like what are some of the really good fonts to use? What are fonts that are easy to read? And so this encompasses your people with dyslexia, people with visual impairments, but it also just makes it a user-friendly experience for everybody. If you have a font that is pleasing to the eye, that makes it easy to read, because sometimes people could be reading pages upon pages, especially when we talk about research or scholarly publishing. Some of those books are are pretty hefty in terms of wording. And so the more gentle the, the font to anybody's eyes, the better experience that they're all going to have. And so I think from the very beginning, it's a case of looking at what standards meet the needs of not just customer A, customer B, what what's out there that can help guide your decision making in the design process. And I think that's always a good exercise for all of us to do. And then we're making things born accessible and, and inclusive for as many people as we can right from the beginning. And it's going to benefit everyone. Thank you. And that's really important to know that. Something as, let's just not say quick, but something as simple as making sure that your font helps in a way for a lot more people to read it. It makes a big change. And it's, and I would say that's not such a big leap. Am I correct when I say that? It's quite a simplistic thing to do to start off with that makes a bigger change on the other end. Yes, absolutely. It's. I think, again, it goes back to the, the, the misconceptions around it's going to have to be something really special and really different, and it's not going to tie in with our branding. And actually, you find out that it does tie in with the branding, and most often the font is, is very easy to change, and it can actually look much better if you go for a dyslexia-friendly font. And so I think there needs to be more understanding around universal design that helps encompass everything in terms of accessibility. And it it doesn't need to be as complicated as it may first appear. That's some amazing insight, Stacey and Christina. That's really important for even for me to hear as a marketer. And I think our listeners would also appreciate knowing that, especially people who are looking at creating products and looking at making products more accessible at different parts of the product journey. So now coming back to the last topic of the day, how has the conversation about accessibility in scholarly publishing evolved since you started working in this space? Where do you see it going next? From my perspective, it has come on leaps and bounds. And it may not feel like it to some people who are just starting the journey, But if I quickly flash back to my own experience trying to scan a million scholarly journals when I was at university and them coming out upside down, back to front, not having scanned at all, to now where I can just log into a particular publishing server or I can go onto the the Bookshare UK or Bookshare US platform. And, and, And on most platforms, we have over a million books on each platform where I could just go search for what I need, download it in a format that's accessible to me. That that was just unthinkable 20 years ago. And we've seen such progress even since then. The fact that we are having this wonderful conversation is amazing. And, And I'm having these conversations all the time now. 
again, five years ago, not so much. Ten years ago, barely at all. Ten years ago, we just started looking at the Marrakesh Treaty. And so if we think even about that, now we're seeing that in action and having books shared across borders. There's so much that we've achieved in the past ten years alone. And looking forward, it's still so exciting because we're seeing a lot more progress. And then I, I did a maths degree. And so I'm particularly excited about a lot of the stuff that's coming up in terms of being able to access STEM content. So your science, technology, engineering and math and medicine content, being able to actually interact with that online with a screen reader. That's something that we're right on the precipice of. And I think even just in the next year or two, we're going to see some really exciting innovation in that space. It's already happening and it's, it's crucial because those are the subjects that are most difficult for people with visual impairments to get into. To even be able to study is so difficult. And so I think we've got a lot of exciting things to see in terms of more inclusion in education but most importantly, more independence. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, which is a shame because I could have spent much more time on this topic. So thank you so much to Christina and Stacy for joining us and sharing your insights with us on this really important topic. So as we draw to a close, can you share with our listeners the best way to reach you with any thoughts or questions? The best way to reach me would be through LinkedIn. The best way to reach me if you have any comments or questions is either through LinkedIn or feel free to email me stacy.scott at tambersandf.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And then for our listeners, please feel free to share any suggestions for topics and guests via the podcast page on our Wiley Partner Solutions website. We'll have all the links about today's show and also any further links in the show notes. So thank you for listening and keep an eye out for the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Research Impact Podcast, conversations with publishing leaders on trends and solutions for open research. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.